0: 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We just finished up. Paul dealt with a number of issues in this church, things that they didn't really talk to him about. And what we're going to see beginning in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, we have a new section of the book. And apparently, we talked about this earlier, but it seems like the church had sent him a letter And that letter had, after he had sent them a letter, they responded. And that letter had a number of questions about particular things and issues. And Paul, you know, they didn't tell him about the man who was sleeping with his stepmom or the divisions in the church or some of the other things he already had to address. But they did ask some particular questions. So each section through the rest of the book, we're going to see that little Word, phrase there in my Bible says now concerning or about uh, seven one, it's gonna be the married state. He's gonna talk about marriage on a number of different levels. 725, he'll say now concerning virgins, what do we do with our daughters? How do we give them away? Should we give them away in marriage? 8, 1, and 4, he's gonna say now concerning things sacrificed to idols and Food that's been sacrificed to idols, 12.1, he's going to talk about now concerning spiritual gifts. 16.1, collections in the church. 16.12, Apollos, who had been a major minister there. So the rest of the letter, he's kind of addressing things that they had brought up. And he's going to walk through those one by one. And we don't know all of the background information in those things. We don't know everything that they wrote to him. There's a lot of guesses as to what's happening here in Corinth. It seems like they were confused about a bunch of things, about singleness, about marriage itself. Sex inside of marriage, is that wrong? Is that right? Sounds weird to us, but this is what was happening now that we're saved and our spouse isn't saved. Do we continue in that marriage? What does that look like? So there was a lot of different kind of weird, it seems theologies going on. But what What Paul wants to kind of focus on here as he's responding to them are the things that the Spirit put on his heart that you and I still need for our day and age. So some of the background we might not know 100%, but what is here, God wants us to know. And it's kind of like we're here in one side of a phone conversation. Somebody's talking. This is Paul talking back to them. We didn't quite hear what they said to him, but This is the stuff that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear. So it's important for us to get in here. I also think it's just important as we get into this, again, largely speaking of marriage, but it speaks of singleness as well. These things are important for all of us. Don't just check out. Uh, If you're looking to be married, then they're important for you. It's important for you to know the world that you're headed into. If you are married, obviously these things are important for us. They're also important for us as Christians to know this is an important section of scripture in relation to marriage. You're going to have friends. You're going to have family members. You might have children one day that are in specific situations to know where to tell them to look in the Bible and to read these things. And it's not just you saying stuff is important. So I think for all of us, it's important for us to know this section of scripture Even though some of these things may seem difficult, it's important for us to be familiar with it. So that little intro, let's begin here again in verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Paul says, okay, I'm going to start addressing the things that you had talked to me about and wrote to me about. And he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Your Bible might say it's good for a man not to marry. The idea, touch a woman, that phrase is sexually. So marriage would be implied there. And what Paul is talking about is he's ratifying something he said before. He's going to say it again through the chapter that in general, singleness is good. He's not going to say marriage is bad. He's making the point that to live a single life, to be celibate and give your life to the Lord is in and of itself a good thing. And he's going to say, I, I wish you guys could do that. He's definitely not saying that people should not be married. Uh, he will write in Timothy, and he'll actually say, anyone who forbids marriage is teaching the doctrine of demons. So he's literally saying it's a satanic thing for somebody to be out there teaching that other people shouldn't be married. Um, so that's not what he's doing here. He's simply restating something that they had misunderstood about singleness in his last letter. He's stating, hey, look, it's a good thing. You don't have to be married. Sometimes there's that pressure. In the Jewish culture particularly, there was a pressure that you needed to be married. Something was wrong if you weren't. Um, Maybe some of you who are prospective grandparents are pressuring somebody that they have to be married, but uh, that's the idea here. Jesus would say in Matthew 19, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who was able to accept it, let him accept it. And Paul's just stating here, the single life has its own particular joys and opportunities, and it's pleasing to God. And the reality is all of us, live the single life at some point in our life or at more than one point in our life. So Paul's just stating something they misunderstood. Hey, look, this is good. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. If you're living a single life, that's fine. You can honor God in that way. But he says in verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Nevertheless, he's going to say here, marriage is also good, particularly because of sexual immorality. The sense there is, in the plural, immoralities, as it seems there was a whole bunch of sexual problems in the church that were a direct result of their misunderstanding of marriage. So they had these weird kind of ideas. Okay, now we're saved. Uh, it's more spiritual to be celibate within a marriage. Or that we're going to see they had these different types of thoughts going on. And whatever all their thoughts were, they were leading them into sexual immorality in the church, which Paul's already had to address on a number of different levels. So what he says to them here is, look, instead of that, you're seeing the fruit of this bad working out of whatever your doctrine and theology is. Instead, you should be married. And notice he says that each man should have a woman and the woman should have a man, which Again, it's important. Biblical marriage is always between one man and one woman. God doesn't lead anybody into any other type of marriage. This is the only type of marriage in his design. In our world, there's a lot of other things. But biblically, what the Bible teaches, it's always the same. There's a man and a woman. Each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And it could sound a bit crude, again, as if the only benefit of marriage is sex, but that's not what Paul's doing here. First, he just wants to say, hey, anybody who's trying to live a single life because you think it's more spiritual, and they found themselves in sexual immorality, obviously that's not working for you. (laughs) Your gift is not singleness. Get married. And there was apparently a section of the church that thought, That would be wrong for them, and it was more spiritual to be single. And Paul's saying, no, instead of living in sexual immorality, be married. If you're a lady and you think it was more spiritual to be single and you're living in sexual sin, be married. There's there's a provision that God has made for that, a suitable place for that sexual desire, so that you don't step into sexual immorality. And God says, of course, it's in marriage. The marriage bed, the Bible says, is honorable in God's sight. And so, the single, they can stay single. But if not, you find yourself living in sin. You're not supposed to be single. You should look to be married. And God knows that it's the, notice, your own wife and own husband that is supposed to be your provision in that marriage. Nobody else's wife. And nobody else's husband. The provision in the marriage bed is just that. We're not supposed to seek anything outside of that circle in a marriage. Because then that is despising the provision that God has given for your life. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that is trying to stir up sexual desire in all the wrong places. And the fruit of that is evident in front of us. Most of us don't even want to think about it or look about it. But it's on the news every single day. And the provision that God has put in front of us is your own wife or your own husband. And if I step out of that circle, then what I'm doing is despising the provision that God has given me in my life. And I am supposed to focus where God has told me to focus. Proverbs six twenty five says, "'Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, "'nor let her allure you with her eyelids.'" Obviously, we live in a culture that's awash with pornography, and there's a constant temptation to go out of the circle of provision that God has given us as believers instead of our own husband or our own wife. That is wrong. It's really sad, actually, they did a study, I think it was in 2013, University of Montreal, where they wanted to study the effects of pornography on people under 20, and they couldn't find a male who wasn't looking at pornography to do the study. Everybody was, uh, which I've had a couple conversations with some of our youth who have gone to college and they've found themselves in the same position. It's very sad, actually, in our world what the reality is. but. They had issues there as well, and sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth. And what Paul says is, if you're not living a single life dishonoring to the Lord, which is good enough of itself, then what you should do is, instead of sexual immoralities being evident, as a man, you should have a wife. As a woman, you should have a husband. That's the provision that God has given. Now, he's going to expand on that, verses 3 and 4, and say this. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, again, I think it's important. Paul is addressing issues they wrote to him about. So Paul isn't just making this stuff up. He's speaking to something that they said to him. I will also say the scriptures address human sexuality because they're applicable to all cultures and all time. This is always an issue, no matter where you are on the face of the earth, uh, no matter where you were in history. And so it has to be addressed on some level. And I also think it's important before we hit these verses to note, take note of the way Paul addresses sexuality, both in a marriage And particularly with these individuals, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is not gratuitous, he is not jokingly crass, he is not outlandish, he is direct, he is simple, he is clear. And unfortunately, again, there's a lot of uh, the church out there, there's always some pastor somewhere doing a you know three-month series on sexuality in the Bible to be relevant, or somebody writing some book that has ridiculous sexual things in it that they try to tie back to the Bible. There's always something way out there that isn't anything like what the Bible's actually talking about. So I think it's important when we come to these types of issues uh, how the Bible talks about them. We should also notice and we should see. And the way Paul talks here about the sexual relationship in a marriage is very important for us to see. What he says is also important. Again, verse three, first saying, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and also the wife to the husband. Paul here is going to make it clear there is a mutual debt of affection that's owed to one another. This is not. You owe me. This is I owe you. Those are two different things. Spouses recognize the need that's in a marriage. It makes perfect sense because if you are your spouse's provision, you're not supposed to willingly or ignorantly keep that provision back. It's important for us to recognize. I mean, the reality is we wouldn't do that in other things. I like to cook. Uh, I'll make dinner on a fairly regular basis. I have never yet in our marriage, and maybe it could happen, put out plates for my two daughters and left my wife nothing while the rest of us start eating. (laughs) Uh, That would not go over well if that happened. And I just, I forgot that you needed to eat. I didn't know that was a desire in your being, right? Like that, no, this, in a marriage, you are providing for one another. She also has never forgotten me at a meal. We've made that happen. It's worked out just fine. And there's another reality of provision in a marriage that Paul is talking about here. And he's just saying you need to recognize. Now, again, one of the problems was apparently they thought it was more spiritual not to be intimate anymore, to be celibate. And Paul is addressing that issue, but the principle still goes for us. He's saying, you don't recognize that you have a debt of affection to. He's speaking about sexuality, but obviously that involves other things, too. Again, Paul is addressing the particular issue. He's not writing a treatise on marriage here. What he says in other passages about marriage also matters. Husbands should love their wives. Wives should respect their husbands. Kindness, other things are also involved in marriage. But there is a particular problem here that he is addressing. So what he does in verse 4, with two simple sentences, is really masterful and inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt. He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, But the wife does. So without, again, being gratuitous at all, people want to have these long talks about what Christians can or can't do in marriage to demystify it again or make it relevant or something like that. Really, it's just a hot mic to get attention. Paul, when he wants to talk about the relation between a husband and a wife in a marriage, what he does is he puts them in a position where the wife's body is servant to the husband and the husband's body is servant to the wife, which means there must be mutual agreement in however the two are interacting. This verse certainly has been abused uh, through history in our time, particularly usually on the male end toward the female, but it can go both ways where uh, a male who's gone normally outside of the circle of marriage wants to do things that is harmful to the other individual in the marriage or goes against their conscience or literally just has perverted expectations that have never been given by God. And they try to somehow justify it through something like this. Uh, That's nowhere in this passage. And certainly, love never harms somebody for their own personal selfish benefit. That's never a reality. And the verse is very important because you notice, again, it is mutual. It doesn't give one authority over the other. It's both are equal. And he gives the other person's body the authority. So what he's saying again is, If there's mutual agreement in the marriage and there's a blessing on both sides, go ahead. If not, then something's wrong. The provision of our spouse's body, again, and no other body, nobody else, no other person, no other human body. That's the provision we're supposed to have. And there should be a consent in the way that we're loving one another. We're one in him. That is something that should be clear in the interaction. And really, Paul's basically saying, if you can understand this rule, I don't have to go into all these crazy details about things. This should be enough for you here to understand this and to be able to work this out. The other individual God has brought in your life, you should care about them. And he's given the authority on both sides. So... If one person, that body is doing something harmful that is not supposed to be uh, a benefit in the marriage, it's not loving, it's not building your relationship, then Paul says, obviously, that's not something that should be involved in your marriage. And he doesn't have to get in all the details of things. And I think that's an important principle for us. Again, certainly, I think it's important that it is. The other person's body. He, he the whole time, notice he goes back and forth. Man and wife, man and wife, man and wife. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband. The husband not have authority over his own body, but the wife. So the the interaction is always between husband and wife, and husband and wife. Uh we were in a staff meeting the other day. There's another pastor. In some places, the pastor's wife is called the First Lady. And he said, my wife said, you will never call me the first lady. I am the only lady. (laughs) I understand that. She said, there's not a first lady because then there's a second and third and fourth. I'm the only lady. And when Adam and Eve were around, they were the only man and the only woman. And that is how a marriage is supposed to be set up. And this doesn't need to be health class. But the reality is. You don't need more provision than one other body to fulfill the sexual urge or what God has asked in procreation. So what he puts here is really what would be the best benefit in a marriage. And certainly the challenge is just lust has been particularly so stirred up, not only in our society, but in societies through history, that an individual who doesn't need more than another person to fulfill their sexual desire but has an endless lust which can never be fulfilled can never nobody can actually meet up to that again which is why it's so sad in our culture if we just stacked up one sexual thing then over another uh, one porno- pornographic site boasted that basically you could have started watching their videos 100 years ago and you still wouldn't be done with their content. Just one site. Right? That, there's, there's no woman in the world who can match up to that. There's no man in the world who can match up to that. The, the perversion in our society has so degraded hearts and minds that something like this can seem almost like impossible. But it's not impossible, and Paul just needs to set out the reality and basically say, you're, you're a husband and wife. You are one another's provision. You should recognize the affection that's due to one another, and you should keep that love within this mutual commitment, a mutual understanding in the marriage and the way that we love one another. That should be in your marriage and outside of your marriage, right? Like in the marriage, this body is for my spouse. And outside the marriage, anybody else who wants your body, you could say this body is for my spouse. This is not your body. This is their body. They have authority over this body, right? Like Joseph could say to Potiphar's wife. Again, it's sad in our culture how many are basically selling their bodies for profit constantly because it's easy, not just literally physically, but online in all different types of ways. Your body is for the Lord. He just said that in the last chapter. You're not your own, particularly as believers, and for your spouse. And Paul leaves it within that context. Now he adds on to that, verse 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control so understanding this mutual dependence and provision that they should build healthy intimacy and companionship in marriage paul says do not deprive one another and the idea there is sex isn't supposed to be used as a manipulation tool within the marriage from the husband or the wife. It's supposed to be something certainly that is tying us together. And even though there are wrongs, you have two imperfect individuals who make mistakes in a marriage, those things always are gonna have to be worked through. You can't, you still can't fight sin with sin. And Paul's saying this is never gonna bless a marriage. If there's an exception at all, what that exception should be is a time of seeking the Lord in prayer notice with consent an agreed upon time period. There, there are plenty of spouses here that will consent to being separated to go on a missions trip or to seek the Lord in prayer or to serve the Lord in some way. We shouldn't separate from one another just for material gain. That shouldn't be a part of it. Paul says, if there's an exception then separate for a while to seek the Lord on some level and some service. But even that should have consent in it. Why? He says, because the more distance you keep, Satan will tempt you. Satan will try to get a foothold in your marriage. Somebody said Satan will do anything he can to get you in bed together before you're married and anything he can to keep you out of bed together after you're married. And he knows what will be a blessing in marriage. And so he will try to pervert it. And the more powerful and good a thing is in and of itself, the more harmful and destructive it can be on the other side. Satan was a pretty powerful angel. And therefore, he's a pretty powerful fallen angel. A child is a wonderful thing. A child as an idol is a very difficult thing. The more wonderful a thing is in and of itself, the more it can be perverted. And the sexual relationship in a marriage that God has given between a man and a woman is a wonderful thing. But it can also be twisted and it can become very harmful. And so what Paul is saying is don't deprive one another. If you, if you have to seek the Lord on some level, obviously the Lord is first. Okay. But come back together because Satan will seek to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Coming together again will press you on your character issues. Keeping one another apart allows you not to deal with the things that would cause you to come back together. Satan's no fool. He knows that If you want to keep your marriage together, you got to work on things. So if he can kind of keep you apart, keep you separate, keep intimacy out of the way, have that kind of agreed upon that you don't actually deal with the things like temper and attitude and actions in your marriage. And unfortunately, you're not going to live for weeks and months and years defrauding one another of marital intimacy. The enemy's going to get a hold, and it's going to break down. And he does that in people's lives. So what this command does is, when we've been hurt, or there's an issue in a marriage, it forces us to have to work on that issue to come back together in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and that's good for a husband and a wife. If we actively live depriving one another... You live in direct disobedience, and you also put you and your spouse in a place of easy temptation. It's not pleasing to the Lord. Humble yourself and allow him to begin to work in your life and in your marriage. Now, 6 and 7, he'll say this. He'll say, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The, the concession, he says, even though I concede that you can separate for a time to seek the Lord, he's, that's a concession. Doing so is not mandatory. He's saying, I'm not commanding that has to happen. You can seek the Lord and still be together in your marriage. That's fine. The whole point, Paul's whole point here is there's not supposed to be celibacy within a marriage. Outside of that, again, he says, that's good. He said, I wish that you guys were like me. Apparently, it seems like Paul must have been married in the past, but at this point, it seems like he's single. We don't know what would have happened uh, to his wife as a Jew and particularly as one of the religious leaders who's very likely married. But at this point, he's living a single life. And he's saying, you know what? I wish everybody was like me. But I understand, notice, that each one has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. Paul recognizes everybody has their own gift. That gift is a spiritual gift. It's a divine grace from God. That's what the word means. And it's a type that can't be commanded. It's like the spiritual gifts he's going to talk about in chapter 12. I can't command somebody to be an evangelist. I can't command somebody to have mercy. I can't command somebody to be a pastor teacher. I can't command somebody to speak in tongues. And I also can't command somebody to be celibate. The Catholic Church has a difficult history there. Because it's not a command from scripture. And it's bore very bad fruit through history. So what we find here is Paul is much more understanding. He says, look, I wish that people could live like me. But I understand everybody can't. If you don't have that grace from the Lord, that's fine. Get married and live in your marriage the way you're supposed to. Now he's going to build on that on another level. He's kind of addressed that issue. Verse 80 says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passions. He says, to the unmarried, the the word there is likely widowers. There wasn't actually an active Greek word for a widower at the time. And Paul's pattern has been through here, dressing men and women, men and women. Contextually, though, unmarried is fine because he's addressing unmarried people either way. So he's saying to the widowers or or widows, look, if you, again, find yourself in sin, if you can't exercise self-control, then you should be married. If you can live single, great. That's fine, but apparently some of them were trying to stay celibate in marriage, and some people were just trying to stay celibate, and they were living out their sexuality with either temple prostitutes, which was very common in that day, or slaves, or there's other levels of sexuality that basically weren't considered immoral. You could be in a marriage and go to one of these temple prostitutes, and they wouldn't think that you had ruined your marriage or anything, but there's a new obviously sexual ethic in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you can stay unmarried and chaste, great. It's wonderful. But if you need to be married, if you don't have self-control, then you're not in sin getting married. Get married. Find somebody and give your life to them. That there is a place, again, for that that is safe. Don't go outside of the marriage. It's better to marry than to burn. That's the picture there. And to burn just means, it carries the connotation of being on fire. It's the word used for the fiery darts that the enemy shoots. Sometimes it's used of burning in terms of cleansing. Sometimes it's used of burning in terms of judgment. Paul doesn't really expand it here. Maybe he's leaving it ambiguous on purpose. Um, he's just saying, look, you don't want to live in that state. But uh, what Paul says is there's, there's a place for that desire to be fulfilled in a marriage. We don't have to just have a spouse for sex. Again, the rest of what the Bible says is important. We're called to love and respect them as well. But he's, without excluding the rest of what the Bible says, again, he's addressing a very specific issue here in the church that they had been talking about. Now... Uh, Again, because some thought, oh, it's just more spiritual if we stay single and honor the Lord. And he's saying, no, just get married, guys. It's okay. Verse 10. Now to the married. So this is to the people who are already married. I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul here now says, okay, to marry people, I have a command for you. And he says, not just me, this is the Lord. And Paul wants to differentiate. Christ taught some very clear things while he was on earth. And then the Holy Spirit taught the apostles things through Christ's teaching afterward. Christ also gave Paul some direct things appearing to him. But Paul always differentiates between the two. He'll say that in verse 6. He'll say it in verse 12. He'll say it in verse 25. He'll say it in verse 40. But he speaks very directly about the things that Jesus had commanded. And Jesus spoke very directly about divorce. Matthew five thirty-one and 32, Jesus would say, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Matthew 19, Jesus speaks about divorce. Mark 10, Luke 16:18. So here Jesus gave pretty clear commands about divorce. We shouldn't divorce except in the case of sexual immorality. Paul says, you guys know that. That command is from the Lord. So a wife is not to depart from her husband. He makes that clear. Save, he's going to throw one thing in here. Uh, and really there are three, three biblical ways that we see a marriage can clearly be dissolved. None of which God is happy about. I think it's important. Sometimes God addresses things in the scripture because he knows we were going to live sinful lives. It's not, he's not happy about it. The, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why did Moses say we could give a bill of divorcement? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts. It's not because God loves divorce. It's because he knew human beings were sinful. And because we needed help, he allowed this thing to happen. So he gives commands about theft, about bringing a container into your neighbor's farm and taking too many grapes home. about murder, about slavery, about disease. He doesn't love disease. He just knew we were going to live in a sinful world. So he addresses all types of issues. And he also addresses divorce. And the scriptures say pretty clearly, if a spouse dies, that marriage is dissolved. In the case of sexual immorality, there can be a divorce. And here, he's going to give another case of abandonment. There can be divorce. But he says, otherwise, it's good for them to remain married. A wife should not depart from her husband. Verse 11. But even if she does depart, that's not an exception. He's just giving instruction now. Okay, this is going to happen. If it does happen, here's what should happen. Let her remain unmarried. Or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So Paul says, if there's a spouse, a believing spouse, who's married to another believer. And one of the believers just leaves the marriage. The spouse didn't die. There wasn't sexual immorality there. There wasn't a biblical reason for divorce. Then the instruction is that spouse who left, who departed, is supposed to remain unmarried, single, or be reconciled with their spouse that they left. Those are the options of how you can please the Lord and how you can instruct somebody else in this scenario. We have this on our premarital forms here. If you're going to get married here, we'll ask a question. Were you married before? Were they a believer? What were the scenarios because of this passage right here? And we'll ask people to think about and read through this passage and see how it relates to their circumstance. Marriage, I think it's important, is a gift from God. It's not a right. Our life is a gift from God. We don't have a right to life. The role of a pastor is a gift, but I could disqualify myself from the pastorate. And Paul says the same thing about a marriage, that a marriage can be treated in such a way that then the way I could honor my marriage is to remain single as a believer before the Lord and this other individual or reconcile back with that spouse. Now, I'll say this. uh, I'll freely admit the issues of divorce and abandonment and marriage are some of the most difficult that we face and deal with. It's very hard sometimes to actually know what's going on. It's hard to tell sometimes whether somebody's a believer or not a believer. It's very difficult sometimes to tell who's truly doing what in any type of scenario. These things are not always particularly clear-cut. And even though it's not always easy to figure out what's going on, It is important for us to know, okay, Lord, what do you say about it? And like, we have to please you. And this is one of the passages that is very important for us to know. Uh, If you have a believing friend who's thinking of leaving their marriage, they need to be able to read this, think about it, understand what the Lord would say. Marriage is a gift. We should recognize that. If you have questions, you're like, man, this is kind of tough. I never really thought about that. God thinks pretty seriously about marriage. Like, I need to work through some of these issues. You can speak with us. Trevor was just telling me before the service, Pastor Trevor, he wants to do more marriage counseling. So anybody that has a lot of questions, you can just see Trevor afterwards. He's happy to talk with you. Now, all, any of us, any of us will speak with you. But these things are, they're they're difficult. And no doubt, they were difficult here in Corinth. And Paul has to write these things because they were happening then. And God left them here by his Holy Spirit because they're happening now. And, you know, what does that look like to be a repentant person in this situation, right? These things, they're not always so easy. But what God says here is easy to understand. And it's important for us that If we want to follow him and honor him, we recognize that. Now, he's going to continue on and deal with another issue. He says in 12, but to the rest, he's already talked to a lot of people. I, not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, Let her not divorce him. Now, Paul's going to address these mixed-faith marriages. This, again, was difficult. These people were getting saved, and people weren't growing up in Christian families. They were hearing the gospel for the first time, and a lot of people were getting saved, and their spouse was not saved. They didn't receive Christ. They didn't know the message, or they hadn't accepted him yet. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Jews would, a lot of times, be called to put away They're pagan wives that they shouldn't have taken in the first place. So it seems like people in Corinth were kind of confused now. Okay, if I'm saved and this person isn't saved, can I be sexually intimate with them? Should I keep up this marriage? Should I just divorce them? What do we do here? And Paul is going to begin to speak to them. And he says to them, look, if you're a saved husband and your wife is unsaved and she's happy to be married to you, stay in that marriage. Your you're a saved wife and your husband isn't saved and they're happy to be there, stay in that marriage. Don't, don't just break it off. Notice Paul does not say if anyone wishes to take an unbelieving husband or wife. He says if somebody has an unbelieving husband or wife. At the end of the chapter, I'll make it very clear She is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. As believers, I'm not supposed to willingly, knowingly marry somebody who is not saved. That's not the situation here. This does not give us freedom to just go marry anybody. As believers, the Bible is very clear. We're only supposed to marry believers. For the very simple reason that we won't share the things that are actually the most important in our lives with an unbeliever. That means our love for Christ our purpose in life, and what our biblical moral is. And if those things are not essential to you in your marriage, you're not thinking as a Christian. And so Paul speaks very clearly we're not supposed to willingly head into that situation. It's a rebellious abandonment of the Lord in your life. Now, people have done it, I'm sure a lot of people could say. I know so-and-so, and they married this person, and all the Christians they knew were jerks, but this guy was really nice, and they married him, and it worked out in the end. Look, because God is gracious does not mean that we just take that for granted. And just because something happened in somebody else's life doesn't mean it's going to happen in my life. Like, people have climbed Mount Everest. I'm never going to climb Mount Everest. Okay. yeah, people have done a lot of things. That doesn't mean you can do them or I can do them. And, you know, God had grace on David and Bathsheba. We don't use them as an example for how we should find people and marry them. So the grace of God does not absolve us from willing obedience. So anybody who's aiming at marrying somebody who's not saved, this is pretty clear. It's also pretty clear that all conversions were not household conversions. Just because the father got saved or the mother got saved didn't mean everybody in the family took that faith. There were still, even in the early church, these issues where it was difficult to work through some of these things. But it's clear he's saying you shouldn't divorce them. And the reality is if you loved them before you were saved and then you got saved, you should be able to love them better now that you're saved. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. And it doesn't mean there's not conflict, but Paul wants them to be clear that just because one member of the family is unsaved doesn't mean that relationship isn't pleasing to God. And he expands that. Look at the next verse where he'll say in 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean but now they are holy. That word holy is the same as sanctified. It's the same word all the way through. Sanctified means set apart. And what Paul's saying is, look, just because you're married to an unsafe person doesn't mean your marriage is now unclean or displeasing in God's eyes. Your marriage is still set apart for God's purposes. And the kids you have in that marriage, it doesn't mean those kids are now unclean. They're still a part of it. This This marriage can still be pleasing in God's sight. And people were, they were, they were afraid that, am I doing something now that's displeasing to the Lord? Am I supposed to have kids with this individual? Is that going to be displeasing to the Lord? And what Paul is saying is no. No, don't worry about that. You're sanctified. Your unbelieving spouse is sanctified. The fruit that you will have from your relationship is sanctified. Don't worry. It's still something that's pleasing to God. And it was important for them to be able to hear those things. Now, 15. He's going to give the other side of the coin here. He knows these situations will come up. He says, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife? Whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? Now Paul wants to speak on the other side. I'm sure he's already seen this. Sadly, we've seen it in our day. Just because one member of a marriage gets saved doesn't mean the other member is happy about that. In fact, even though sometimes a member gets saved and their life is totally changed, they're kind now, they're clean. They're not alcoholics anymore. They're not speaking in ways that are harmful or filthy. And sometimes the other spouse is not happy about that. They wish that they still talk that way or acted that way or will step into their abuse, substance abuse with them or live for the worldly things they used to live for and they're not happy that there's a wholesome character in their life. And unfortunately... A lot of marriage would break down in those ways. And what Paul is saying is if the unbelieving spouse does not want to stay in the marriage, not the believing part, the unbelieving spouse wants to leave. They don't like this marriage anymore. They don't like the changes in their lives. God knows that a believing partner can't change their believing nature. That would go totally against what he's done. So what he allows is, then allow them to depart. And he uses the word depart because you know, divorce obviously is, is the legal kind of term for it. But the reality is, in, even in this culture, everybody didn't always give their spouse a bill of divorcement. They just left. And very often, somebody would just depart. And that's the way it was. And so he says, "Is let them depart. Let them go. You don't have to battle them to keep from divorcing them. If they depart, you allow them to do so. Notice he says there, why? A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. A marriage is supposed to have peace. That's what God wants to build in a marriage. That peace should be in our lives individually, and it should be in our lives together. And he's, not, and he's saying a believer doesn't, shouldn't have the war with an unsaved person to keep together something the unsaved person doesn't want to keep together. And I think a lot of them, again, would feel like they had failed. If this un, unsaved partner left them, I got saved, then this person leaves me, that God would be displeased. And I think it was very important for them to hear, no, let them go. And live in God's peace. That's, that's all right, Paul says. God is not angry with you. You can allow them to leave, and you are no longer in bondage. You are absolved. That, the ties from that marriage are broken in God's sight. That's okay. And that was certainly something I'm sure would be difficult for them, if they're willing to stay, stay. Wonderful. If they go, go. God has called us to peace. 4:16 How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The the kind of question here is is this verse how do we apply this verse? Is it a hopeful exhortation like hey, you don't know. Maybe Your husband or wife will get saved if you stay in that marriage. Or is it a kind of corrective warning saying, actually, there's no sense fighting in that marriage because you don't know if they're going to get saved. They they could stay like that the rest of your lives. Uh, I actually, not as a cop-out, believe that Paul is kind of saying the verse relates to both because the piece from the previous verse relates to both. His whole point is, If the unsafe person wants to live with you and you can live at peace, live at peace. If the unsafe person doesn't want to live with you and it's a war to keep them, then live at peace. Don't fight that war. It's either you should live in peace either way. God has not called us to be warring with people. If my marriage is a constant battle, there's probably something wrong with me. Or I need to let something go here. And what Paul is saying is, in sixteen, I, I think either or, you as a husband or wife, if you're, if they're willing to live with you, you don't know. Maybe they'll be saved. First Peter chapter three speaks to that. How, how do you win an unsaved spouse that doesn't want to hear the word? Through your conduct and your character. Let them see that on a regular basis. Doesn't have to be your words. It could be your life. And maybe God will do a work and they'll be saved. But it's the same on the other side. If they're fighting and they want to leave, allow them to leave because how do you know? You could have lived the perfect life in front of them and they could reject you. That's the reality of Jesus when he walked on earth. He lived the perfect life and people saw him and people rejected him. They did not accept that life just because we're living a life that we actually should doesn't mean that everybody's going to turn around and accept it. It doesn't mean I'm going to fix or change a person. Only God saves people. And people rejected Jesus Christ. So how do you know? You can't fight this battle. Allow them to go. So the reality is we don't. But we're called to peace. You know, I think I'll just, I could throw this in, I think by application. If Paul isn't speaking specifically to this right now, but I think the application can go from the greater to the lesser. Obviously, if he calls a believer to live with an unsaved spouse that's willing to live with them at peace. You know, if you're here or you're listening and you have a spouse that's a believer, but's an immature believer or backslidden believer or not walking the way that they should, If God can tell a Christian to live with an unsaved spouse that's at peace with them and be pleasing to him, then you can live with your spouse that might not be as spiritual as you would have them to be and still honor the Lord and be pleasing to him and pray that he works in their heart and in their life. We find ourselves many in that position as well. And God will be gracious if you need help. You ask the God of peace. He'll direct us. He'll lead us. And it's important here, I think, for us to recognize in all of these things, God sees marriage as extremely important. He created it. It's his design. He wants to protect it. He wants to guard it. He realizes the fruit of it better than we ever could. And he realizes how good it is for our lives if he has us there. If we're single, Paul said numerous times, that's good too, and he's going to address that further. But if we're married, these things are important for us to know and understand. Again, you know, you're going to have people that you talk to. This chapter will probably be pretty important for you to know how to point them to things, direct them to things, speak to them. So this instruction here, the Lord has left with us Because he knows we need it in this day and age. And I will simply end just saying this. We can stand. We'll worship here in a moment. If on some level, you can all stand. It's all right. I won't talk too much. (laughs) You know, you know you need the Lord. The God who commands us to play the role of husband or wife in a marriage doesn't command us to play that role and then say, do it on your own. He's the perfect husband. He's the perfect spouse. He knows what we need. And if you need help, just go to him. And say, Lord, I can never do this if you don't help me. You call me to do this. I don't have it in myself. You know that. Give me what you command. Command what you will, but give me what you command. And he's gracious. Let's pray. Lord, I just lift each and every marriage in this room to you, Lord. I pray for myself as well. I pray that you would keep us true to one another and true to you. That we could be the life and the light and the witness that you would have us to be in this world. Lord Jesus, I pray for those here that need your help in one way or another. You know those things. pray you would speak to them and encourage them And you. You call yourself our helper, Because you knew we would need it. And so I pray you extend, Lord, help to those who need it. Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom to those who need it. You say you give wisdom liberally to any who ask. So anybody here who needs wisdom to know how to please you, pray you'd give them their portion. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to know the blessing that you have designed in these things. That we could rejoice in you that you would be welcome and at home in our homes and in our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.